for the past couple of months, we have been talking about Father Abraham each and every week. And by now, I hope you're almost annoyed with what I'm about to do because we are going to say the promises that God made to Abraham out loud, all four of them, that God promised Abraham a name, a land, a son, and a blessing. We have covered so many chapters of this story, and I hope that even if you grew up in church and you're familiar with some of the bits and pieces of his story, that, this, that so far in the past couple of months, you have learned something new about him. If you haven't been here, we, uh, I want to show you a little bit of review and overview of what we've looked at so far. In all the way back in Genesis 11, uh, we talked about the Tower of Babel and how the citizens of Babel wanted to build a, a tower that reached up to the heavens. And their whole purpose was to make a name for themselves. Uh, that is a very big difference than the mission of Abraham. God came down from heaven to Abraham and said, I'm going to make your name great, right? That's very different than the mission of the citizens of Babel. So God calls Abram and tells him to go to the land he will show him. But as soon as they show up, there's a famine. And so Abraham and Sarah have to travel all the way down to Egypt to the Nile River where things are a little bit more financially secure. But then another tragedy strikes. Pharaoh thinks that Sarah is beautiful. And so he kidnaps her, probably takes her into his harem. And fortunately, God sends plagues upon Pharaoh, and they escape. On their way out, in chapter 13, Abram and his nephew Lot separate. Lot looks over to the east of the land of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, this land looks amazing. And so he separates from the chosen one, Abraham, and he goes to outside of the promised land, and things get bad for him very quickly. He gets caught up in this really big war of all these kings, and Abraham has to save the day. Abraham musters an army, rescues his nephew Lot, and things only get worse from there with his nephew. In chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram and says, this nephew Lot is not going to be the one uh, that you think. It's, it's actually going to be a son from your own body, your own flesh and blood. You're going to have a son in your old age, and God promises that. Now, in Genesis 16, Sarah sees kind of a loophole. In what God said. Well, God only said that a son would come from your flesh and blood, Abraham. So maybe I'm not supposed to be involved. So they bring in Hagar, an Egyptian slave, and use her as a surrogate. They totally mistreat her. And, and God still blesses uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael. At that point, God makes a sign of the covenant to remind Abraham of what he originally promised him, and that is circumcision. And Eddie Sharp got to talk about that, so if you want to learn any more about that, you can go and listen to his sermon on it. In Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by three mysterious figures. We'll talk about them next week, unless my wife goes into labor, in which case I won't be here. In chapter 8, 19, if you move forward, we go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and God's bad news for those cities now God's grace is seen in the fact that he rescues Lot, that, that guy of all people that we think God would never rescue him. But th here's the thing, in all the way since the beginning, God has been saving unworthy people. And that's what happens in Genesis 19. After 25 years of waiting, you won't believe this, in Genesis 21, Isaac is finally born. Right? Sometimes we read the Bible and don't realize how much time has passed in between chapters. 25 years of waiting, and finally, when Abraham is 100 years old, Isaac finally makes his way on the scene. But there's a lot of drama after that. Sarah does not want 
uh, Isaac to be around Abraham's first son, Ishmael. And so she uh, kicks out Hagar and Ishmael, and they leave. And decades pass, and Abraham, after waiting all this time to receive Isaac, is commanded to sacrifice him. That is a very bizarre uh, story. If you've never heard of it before, it can be very um, confusing. So go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it. And finally, last week, Genesis chapter 23, we saw that Sarah passed away. And God, um, and excuse me, Abraham bought a field inside of the promised land. Can we just celebrate how much we've talked about in Genesis for a second? That is amazing. We have learned so much about our forefather in the faith. But what's so important in all of those chapters is that in the course of decades, Abraham saw the fulfillment of some of those promises. Sometimes we think everything God said in Genesis was only fulfilled 2,000 years later in Jesus. But we see partial fulfillments along the way, right? Abram's name changed from Abram to Abraham. He received a son, which is the beginning of that great nation that God promised him. He, uh, he was blessed both materially and spiritually. Um, and he is also, um, I don't know how to say this another way. Uh, but even though he doesn't have all of the land, he purchases a tiny amount. So we get to see those promises fulfilled. And now, in Genesis 24, we're turning to the next generation, Abraham's promised son, Isaac. Now, there's kind of a problem at the beginning of chapter 24, and I intentionally asked Sharon to not read most of chapter 24, just the ending, okay? Isaac, at the beginning of this chapter, is a bachelor. And being single is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying for God's promises to make a great nation, this is a problem. He is not married and he does not have kids. What's going to happen? Are God's promises threatened? Are they not going to come to pass? How can Abraham's family become as numerous as God said if his only son isn't married? Now, when we are at the end of the story... We see uh, Isaac is just a very lucky man. He is, he is meditating in a field. Maybe he's mourning the death of his mother. We don't know everything that's on his mind. We just know right at dusk, a beautiful woman walks up to him, and he finds out that she has agreed to marry him. So at the beginning of chapter 24, think about where Isaac is. He's a bachelor, no kids, no inheritance from his father. At the end of chapter 25, just two chapters later, he's married, he's inherited his father's entire estate, and he has twin boys. A lot has happened in those two chapters, and today we're going to talk about those things. Because, I don't know about you, but not everybody has lived a life like Isaac's. I mean, come on. His, these blessings in his life just walk right up to him. Um, you may be thinking, you know, I, I've wanted to be married my whole life, but a groom didn't just walk up and, and, and onto my doorstep saying he wanted to marry me. You may be thinking, I've been broke my whole life, right? I'm working myself to death to pay the, the bills. My dad get, didn't give me inheritance like Isaac's. I think when we see this story, we can think everything is handed to him on a silver platter. It's kind of annoying that all these blessings are just given to him with no effort at all. And here's what you need to know. There were four figures behind the scenes, unbeknownst to Isaac, that were working for these blessings for him. So what I want you to come away with at the end of the sermon is this. Whoever you are, and I really mean this, whoever you are, you have more in common with Isaac than you think. 
Now, I know what may be going on, uh, on here, right? You might be thinking, okay, well, he's rich and I'm poor. I can't relate to him. He's a man. I'm a woman. He's privileged. I'm oppressed. He's lucky. I'm not. But I hope you can discover by the end of this sermon that you have more in common with Isaac than you think. Now, this chapter is over 60 verses long, so we can actually not go into each and every verse. Don't even bother pulling out a Bible. You'll get lost all over the place, okay? We're going to have all the verses up on these screens. So let's start with the very first figure at work in Isaac's marriage, and this is his father, Abraham, okay? We read in the very first verse of chapter 24 that Abraham brings in this head steward of his house, and he makes him swear. He makes him promise on oath that he will go back to his homeland, that is the land of Aram, and pick someone who could be a suitable wife for his son, okay? The servant initially suggests, hey, why don't I take Isaac with me? And Abraham says, absolutely not, that is not okay. In verse 6, Abraham says, make sure you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. In other words, don't take Isaac back there because we've worked really hard to get to the promised land. Okay? Don't take him back. I need you to go on this mission solo. And you need to find someone from our tribe, our people. Okay? So the servant agrees, and we read in verse 10, that this servant and his entourage heads to Aram, made his way to the town of Nahor. He had camels with him, so he knelt them down near a well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time that women go out to draw water. And then this servant prays. It's interesting that Abraham taught this servant how to pray to his God. Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. Show kindness to my master Abraham, because while I'm standing beside this spring, the daughters of the town people are coming out to draw water. Okay? I want us to pause right here. This unnamed servant, I don't know if you've noticed, he seems to actually care about whether or not this is successful. And you might be thinking, why? If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham suggested to God that God make his servant Eliezer of Damascus the heir of all of his inheritance. And now we're reading nine chapters later that Abraham has asked this chief servant, who seems to be unnamed, to accomplish this incredibly important mission. So we have every reason to believe we know who this is. This is Eliezer of Damascus. He's like a son to Abraham, almost like a brother to Isaac. He wants this mission for his adopted father, for his adopted brother to go well. And you can tell that he wants this to be a success because of the test he comes up with. He says this in his prayer in verse 14. Lord, may it be that when I say to one of these young women, please let, your, let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says the magic words, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac, by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Okay, this prayer is a kind of test, right? 
whoever this potential bride could be, not only is she going to accept, I'm going to uh, uh, let you have some of my water, I will also go out of my way in a very selfless way to water your camels too. This is backbreaking labor. I don't know if anybody in this room has watered camels before, but it's not easy, okay? This is backbreaking labor. It's a test of hospitality. But the best thing about this is before Eliezer is even done creating the test, his prayer is answered. In verse 15, we read, Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. And we, the audience reading this text, know who she is. She's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who is the wife of, say it out loud, Abraham's brother. Okay? She's part of the family. She's in the tribe. This is the first woman he looks at, and we already know things are going well. She's very beautiful. She's a virgin. She went down to the spring. She filled her jar and came up again, and you can see how excited the servant is in verse 17. He hurries to meet her and says, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she says, quickly lowering the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And guess what? She says the magic words. I'll draw water for your camels, too, until they've had enough to drink. The only question left is, is she from the tribe? Eliezer doesn't know yet, so he asks her, whose daughter are you? And then she tells him. And his response in verse 26 is so amazing. He bows down and worships the Lord when he finds out that she's from his master's tribe. Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey right to the house of my master's relatives. He didn't even have to try to do this whole experiment with multiple women. It was like the very first one God set him up for success. And I love Rebecca's response. Once she knows that this whole interaction has been directed by God, she runs back home. It's her very first response. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. The prayer has been answered. But we're not done yet. Because ancient marriages are always family affairs. And now we've got mom and dad and brother to convince. Okay? So Eliezer goes to Rebecca's house. And I'm not joking, he spends the next 15 verses retelling this whole story. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, God, give us a little bit more detail on this story. This is aggravating how sparse the Bible can be. And this chapter, it is painstaking in detail. He tells the exact same events in the exact same order, and he is doing this to show them how much work went into uh, this arrangement, okay? We can't go over everything he says or else y'all would fall asleep, but we're going to hit the highlights, okay? In verse 34, we read, this is what Eliezer tells Rebecca's family. I just think this is such a shameless plug. The Lord has blessed my master Abraham abundantly, and he has become wealthy. God has given him sheep, cattle, silver, gold, male and female donkeys, and camels, and male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. Did you listen to what he was saying? Hey, Rebecca, if you marry into this family, you're going to be set for life, right? We're going to take care of you. This family is going to give you all that you need. 
That's his first point. His second point, he quotes his master Abraham. He says, the Lord, before whom I have walked faithfully, will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son and from my own clan and from my father's family. This is the third figure at work behind the scenes, and it's crazy because we don't even know how this character is at work behind the scenes. Both Abraham and Eliezer are just committed to the idea that there is this angel who's been helping this whole situation run smoothly. I love it. We don't know who the angel is, what the angel does, when the angel shows up, or how the angel makes any difference, and apparently there's an angel at work. Then Eliezer says this, Y'all, before I finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring, drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. He says to this family, you know, this is an answer to prayer. And, and God answered it before I could even finish the prayer. And so this is what he says to the family. He says, now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, just tell me. And if not, tell me so I know, so I may know which way to turn. And then Laban, the brother of Rebekah, and Bethuel, her father, answer this way. Let's say these five words in bold out loud together. This is from the Lord. This is from the Lord. There's no way we can deny it, right? We can say nothing to you one way or the other. They say, here's Rebekah, take her and go. We know the fourth and ultimate figure behind the events in this chapter, and it, that figure, is the Lord. I just find it so wonderful that the Lord is at work, an angel is at work, Abraham is at work, and Eliezer is at work. It's like God makes a plan and then includes us in it for whatever reason. Now, there is one final obstacle when they realize that, uh, that the family's pretty wealthy, uh, they, they say to Eliezer, let the girl remain with us 10 days or so, uh, then you may go. And Eliezer says, no, 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 it's now or never. Do not detain me. Send me on my way so I may go to my master. Okay? That's Genesis chapter 4. That gets us all the way from Isaac the bachelor over here with no kids and no inheritance, Right? He has no idea what the future holds for him. And throughout this chapter, God is at work. Abraham is at work. Eliezer is at work. Apparently an angel is at work. And now we've gotten all the way to a woman who has agreed to marry Isaac. Eliezer brings her all the way back to Isaac. He's out in the field one evening meditating. And he looks up and Rebecca and Isaac lock eyes. They do not waste any time at all. He brings her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. They are married. She became his wife. He loved her and was comforted after his mother's death. Okay. Here's to me a, a very easy conclusion to bring from this story, y'all. Everything Isaac has is a gift. Give me a break. He is an actual miracle baby. You realize this? We call some of our kids miracle babies, and I know what we mean, but he is like... Next level miracle baby, right? His mother was 90 and his father was 100. His future wife walks into his life with no work done by him at all. He doesn't even use dating apps. She just walks into his life out in the field one day. His dad dies, gives him his entire inheritance, none of which Isaac worked for. 
Later on, we can go on and read about his sons, Jacob and Esau. They're an answer to his prayer when he and Rebecca can't get pregnant. Y'all, everything in his life is a gift, which is why you and Isaac have more in common than you think. Because we may not have as many gifts as Isaac, but every good gift we have comes from the God of Isaac. Let me say that one more time. Some of you in this room, some of us may not have nearly as many gifts as Isaac, but every good gift we have comes from the same God. Now, when you hear me say every good gift comes from God, almost guaranteed every time someone in the audience hears me say everything in life is good and everything in life is from God. But that is not true. Not everything in life is from God, and not all of it is good. In Christ's parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he describes their situation like this. He says the rich man received good things in life, and Lazarus received bad things in life. Jesus is not clueless. He's not oblivious. He knows we receive some really horrible things in life, and some of those things are not from God. Sometimes they're from the enemy. Sometimes they're from other people sinning against us. Sometimes it's just living in a fallen world. Not everything in life is from God, and not all of it is good. Lazarus received bad things in life, and, and many of us know we've received bad things in life. Second thing, whenever I say every good gift is from God, some of you might hear me say, well, hard work doesn't matter then, because it's all a gift from God. But look at the work that Abraham and Eleazar did. This is not a joke. Do you see how strategic Eleazar is? Right? He posts up at the well because he knows, guess who's coming here later? A lot of women. And then he prays. And then he gives just the right speech to notify the family, by the way, Rebecca's going to be secure. A lot of work went into this situation. God's gifts are not always separate from hard work. I know some of you might be just feeling skeptical at all about anything, any talk of God's gifts, right? You might be thinking, well, most of the good things that come in life are coincidence, chance, or luck. But here's what I'll tell you. Coincidence, chance, and luck, whatever you think about them, they are not more powerful than God's generosity. Let me give you a story. Alice and I, we knew we wanted to get married, and we came down to this church to look at it for a venue, Okay? And we were walking in this hall, and we ran into a guy in that hallway named Eddie Sharp. Have any of y'all heard of him? All right. Okay. We ran into him in the hall. We started up a conversation. And that conversation led to the fact that he was thinking about retiring. And guess what? I was thinking at the same time, I would love to be a preacher in a church of Christ. We had that whole exchange right out in that hallway. And I honestly do not see what is to be gained by just shutting that off and saying, oh, well, that was chance, or that was coincidence, or that was luck. God's plans can include coincidental events where he is generous to us. The fourth thing I'll say is this. Many gifts from God are loans, not possessions. How many of y'all, just raise your hand if you've heard of the story of Job. Okay? Job was a lot richer than Isaac. And Job had more kids than Isaac, and he lost everything. And y'all might know his famous phrase. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Both of those things are true. 
Every good gift from above does not always come with a promise that we will have it forever. The best marriage in the world will come to an end when one spouse dies and one is left behind. The best mom and dad in the world will not be around forever, and many children live long enough to bury a beloved parent or both. We are not Pollyanna as Christians. We don't think that whatever good gift we have from God is our possession for all of eternity. Sometimes it's a limited time only. That doesn't make them any less a gift. Now, those are my four disclaimers, but I want to do something more than just qualify everything I want to say. I want to challenge you, right? If this whole sermon is about gratitude and all the gifts that God has given us, then let's challenge ourselves to tell someone else the story of what unearned gifts God has given to us and the people God used to give you those gifts. Isaac did not do anything remotely special to get his wife, his inheritance, wealth, land, the covenant, God's blessing. And yet we know this story because his family told it to us and wrote it down. We need to tell the, the, the story of all the gifts God has given to us and the people he used in the process. But here's the sad truth about, about God's gifts. And it, it's just something a lot of us struggle with. Sometimes we stand in the way of the gifts of God. At one point, Abraham says this to Eliezer. This is in verse 40 of the, ch of the chapter we just read. Can we put those verses on the screen? He says to Eliezer, The Lord will send an angel before you to make your journey a success. That sounds great. He already knows ahead of time. This is going to be victorious. But, Abraham says, you will be released from my oath if, when you go to my clan, they refuse to give her to you. You'll find a suitable wife for Isaac. The question is, is their family going to be open to it? This is so important about God's gifts. We can stand in their way. We can delay we can push them off to the future. We can refuse to give God's gifts to others. And this is what I want to, to leave you with today before we, we wrap up. When God's gifts arrive on your doorstep, do not delay. Don't waste time. Don't store them away. We can't keep pushing God's gifts further and further and further into the future. This is what Eliezer is tempted to do. They say, oh man, just stay 10 more days or so. It's not going to be that long. And he says, no, it's now or never. When God's gifts arrive on our doorstep, it is time to accept them. Receive what God gives you. Don't delay. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we recognize this morning that there are a variety of gifts in this room. But every good gift we have is from you. You're generous. You're over the top. You're abundant. You're prodigal in the way that you give. You're excessive. You do so much for us that we don't deserve. And like Isaac, I pray that we would accept the wonderful gifts that you give to us. But Father, I pray that if there's any resistance to your gifts, any ways that we refuse to bless others, that we would not stand in the way, that you would give us a sense of urgency. When your gifts show up, we want to 
cherish and love and appreciate them. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.